Welcome to the Hay Kings podcast, brought to you by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. Today I'm joined by Micah Carey. Micah works for a hay equipment manufacturer, and we're going to talk about some of his travels, the variety of haying operations he's had the opportunity to interact with, and we're going to develop some uh, a lexicon for the industry, uh, a common set of vocabulary to clear up confusions. It's about time. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. All right, Micah, you get to go all over the country and see all sorts of different operations. Let's stick to hay. What's the craziest operation that you've seen? In just hay, I'm thinking the Imperial Valley. The amount of cuttings you get down there is untouchable. Looking at nine, ten cuttings a year is insane for anywhere else in the country. And you're talking about alfalfa. Yeah, alfalfa. Alfalfa is the biggest the most cuttings, and then you get into some of your grasses, you're still getting six, seven cuts a year, at least two ton to the acre. That's crazy kind of production. Outside of the Imperial Valley, I mean, that's kind of the hay capital of the world, right? The alfalfa capital. Yeah. It's the biggest alfalfa producing county in the country. After that, you get your big irrigation projects, which are just scattered, and they're all fairly similar, but depending on where they're at in California, Washington, Nevada, Arizona, even all the way up eastern Colorado, there's a surprising amount of hay there that is incredibly similar to all the way out on the West Coast, Mm -hmm. but the trucking barrier really just kills kills the ability to get it onto a ship fast, which is where all those huge markets go to with the ability to just slice it, put it in a container, put it on a ship for low freight rates is so hard to beat. You get those markets where you have the ability to do larger, heavier bales, and the Colorado market's one that really surprised me because it's all, it's almost all retail directly where it's at. And some of it does go other places, but for the majority, what I've seen is you get your big squares, but there's so much to tie that goes straight into the horse market. So you're talking about Colorado Springs, Denver yeah, kind yeah. of metro the area. front range of the Rockies up and down Colorado. Right. Let's talk about baling equipment a little bit. You're on the bale handling side, but let's talk about balers. We're just about to get into a conversation about big bales versus little bales. And there's a reason for both, right? Yes. We got to talk about a retail package versus a more commercial. Yeah, commercial, industrialized. We're running through companies to other companies or through exporters, that kind of stuff. Right. Bigger scale, tighter margins, though. Yeah. A lot tighter margins on those big bales versus the little bales. I'd love to get your thoughts on bundlers versus slicers. So talking about packaging, taking two tie small square bales and coming along with a machine that puts them into a bundle and then comparing that to baling a big bale, slicing it, and uh, repackaging it. I think that's all about your weather window and your market. And what I've seen a lot, because I'm, fr- I'm from Kansas, and we get crazy amounts of round bales. To the retail person who doesn't have just cattle or some, some horses that aren't as much of pets, that's wonderful. Low cost, low labor, cheap storage. But then you get into retail where you want higher quality, nicer hay for pets or for more expensive animals. You start to hit, well, we need to have this put up right. We need to have it put up fast. And everything's ready at the same time. You may have a thousand acres, but you only have the means to do fifty to a hundred acres a day and get that 
taken care of from the windrow to however you put it in your tarp stack or barns or whatever you do with it. I've seen the most unrolling operations versus slicing operations. Mm -hmm. More more unrolling operations versus slicing operations. So you're talking about converting round bales into small square bales. So the big the big difference there I see is pretty much you're going your round bales into two tie or you're going big squares into your forty to seventy pound packages that are a third of two tie. Space wise you can't you can't touch a slicer for efficiency in transport because you can you fill a truck two-thirds of the way full in most of the Midwest, and you're at your weight limit. You're talking about all those 80,000-pound gross yep. weights on semi-loads. Mm-hmm. That's a limiting factor when it comes to shipping hay. Yes. Now, I'm from Washington, and we're blessed with 105,500-pound 105, so 105, gross vehicle weight limit. We can put a lot of hay on a truck. Yeah. 30, 30 tons is inside a reality, so that's 60,000 pounds of hay. And then you add another 40,000 pounds for a truck and trailer. Mm-hmm. We can haul heavy. Yeah. The market up here, it's just so well established and set up by, well, a lot of it by the DOT regulations here for hay hauling specifically because it's such a different market. Because it's an, it's an engineered farming operation in a lot of Washington. I'd love to get that Midwest perspective on Washington agriculture. Well... Where I'm at, things grow, and they grow on their own, and you modify what is being grown versus we're going to pump water into the desert and do what we want to do here. (laughs) That's a really good way to describe Washington. I mean, we've had a few folks on the podcast that talk about four-inch rainfall, four-inch annual rainfall. It's a desert. Tell me about the hay production. Like You got to see some of the export stuff. You got to see some really large hay producers. So on the production side, kind of what what we were talking about earlier is the ability to get everything off the field in a timely manner is the value of any operation. So looking at customers who have gone into the slicers just because of the ability, I got my big score baler. I can go so fast. I don't need to stop to dump on bail. I drop the bail. Someone picks them up, someone stacks them. And during the winter you turn around and then you turn it into your retail product. Same idea as an unroller, but a lot of, the Midwest, the eastern half of the country, you're dealing with variables mostly due in humidity. They set the top limit on your quality of final product, regardless of whatever you can do to try and make it perfect. And that's where I see a lot of the round bills come in because you just can't touch the quality of this made when you have no humidity every night. You get that green, you get 25 or more percent moisture in alfalfa. It's impossible in the eastern half of the country most of the time. Mm -hmm. So that small drop in quality or loss for making a round bale and just leaving your rows outside is very worth it because you don't have to pay for storage. If it is about to rain, you roll it up. You don't even have to move it before it rains if the rain is almost there. I see a lot of them kind of as parallel sides to the same object, just different ways of doing it because the value of the commodity you're handling Tell me a little bit about your background. When I was younger, I just wanted to be that guy who worked on computers all the time. Growing up, I used to love the playing with hardware. I probably put my first computer together when I was 10, 12. I started college for uh, Windows administration, so setting up and managing like a domain-based network in a large-scale business. I started my degree on that when I was 15. Finished that out. Time out. <laughs> college degree <laughs> at 15. So... I went to high school during the day, and I went to 
I started at community college. By the time I was at the end of high school, it was university night classes while I was in high school. <laughs> and we're about to have a conversation about, hey, okay, stick with us here. <laughs> so I got into that background. I actually started working for an ISP, and I was a, a residential installer for them. I really enjoy doing it. I like working with people. I got a lot of customer service because I, I show up at someone's house by myself, and I'm supposed to figure out how I'm going to drill holes in their house, screw stuff onto their roof, that kind of stuff. You get a really good customer service and how to how to take care of someone and let them see you as someone who's kind of responsible, which turns right around into, hey, I'm going to bring you a piece of equipment, and can I drive your $100,000 tractor with you just standing <laughs> on the ground watching? <laughs> it, okay, so take me through that migration from being a, a utility installer to working for an equipment manufacturer. What's your title right now? My title is, I don't know if I have an official title. <laughs> my, my business cards say after sales service is all it says, whatever, okay. whatever that means. Okay. But there's also bef- some before sales stuff involved in there. So it's, it's, it's really, okay, I'm not on the sales team, but after sales established, made, that's kind of where I pick up the reins and just go from there. Mm-hmm. Tell them the in life of the machine, I guess, is sure it jumps all around in there. All right. Now, now take me through that transition from a utilities installer to working for a hay equipment manufacturer. So I was 17, started a, a business doing this ISP work while I was still in, I was actually still in high school. It was kind of a whole weird deal. I would, so I'd go out, I'd do jobs after school, and there was this farmer who I, I knew a little, my brother was good friends with his son, and one summer I was like, you know what, I want to do something more full-time. And he made two-string hay, and I don't know if you've ever heard of, have you ever seen a hay monster? Yeah, it's so a, it's like a self-propelled platform with a bale, ele- like yep. a, a bale elevator yes. to get the bales up off the ground onto the platform, and so, then you stack it. Yes, yeah, so that was how... Hand stack it. That was how I would start. So we would stack, he did, oh, between twenty and 30,000 small squares a year, depending on just depending on the yields of his fields. I was the guy on the back stacking. And we'd go out and we'd try and stack eight, 900 bales a day on, on this particular piece of equipment, which it's a great piece of equipment. It's easier than a trailer, but it's still one of the least sophisticated ways to pick up hay. Right. There's a little bit of automation in there. I was fortunate enough, we would unload with a grapple, so I'd get a break. I just started out as that, and I worked there for two years, oh, just over the summers, during the rest of the season, not hay season, I still did my computer work, was going to business school too. And then he actually, he passed away. His son and nephew took over the operation and they both had, they both had other things going on. And they, you're young, you don't really have a full-time job yet. You want to just work on a farm for now? And I was like, well, offered a, a full-time job. And I'm like, well, I can make some money and pay my bills. So I was there for a while. And that is actually how we got our first bundler was he had looked at building before he passed away. He, he was a lazy idea man. I mean that in the <laughs> nicest and cheap. So he had ideas he wanted to build. His idea was to build his own bundler. And we had some, it was not going to be an automated tying bundler. The way he had his market set up was he was doing palletized loads. So after they were in the barn, they got in the barn through various means through sometimes a, Harrow bed or a stack wagon. <laughs> I'm glad you're using the West Coast term, harrow bed. I have to when I'm out here. Yeah, you do. <laughs> uh, we had a self-propelled 1069, so just straight 
18 layer lean stacks. Yep. And we'd stack them in the barn that way. But coming out of the barn, we would hand stack anywhere from 12 to 20 bales on a pallet and use those half inch wide metal banding ratchet traps and crimp them. We put a little over 700 bales on a 53 foot drop deck and it sucked. I hated doing it so much. But everything was on pallets. You could unload your semi in 30, 40 minutes at your customer's place. And they paid premium for the palletized loads. He had been looking for ways to get away from using the pallets and make the hay itself palletized. That's where he got into bundlers and looked at a few different options. After he passed away, his son is very progressive and likes, he's not afraid of trying new things. And we found a bundler through some various channels. Come to find out, it's actually the first one that ever came to the U.S. directly. Huh. Uh-huh. Um, so that's kind of neat. Knowing where I'm at now that I have the original one from that whole process of getting started, I got to know the U.S. salesman, I guess you could say. It's a whole odd story on how the company got into the U.S., but once they were in the U.S., there was someone selling machines, not working for the company, and there was no one doing direct service as a job full-time. And I saw a need, and I asked some questions, and a couple of months later, I ended up in Spain. <laughs> Let's take a break there and we'll get a word from our sponsor. I'm Danny Juan and, and I switched to the Vermeer 604R because I believe this baler is built to last. I bail about 4,000 bales a year and I think as much money you give for a baler, if they need to bail 4,000 bales a year, even if it's for 10 years, they, they need to get it done. The day I ran it, we absolutely had no issues at all. It fired up and I bailed like some guy. <laughs> it just bailed all day long. Hear the full story at makinghay.com slash haykings. Now, we're, we're playing a game here where we're going to see how far we can get into the episode without saying our <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just let you go first. I, I really want to hear, like, I want to see your boss's reaction when we're, like, halfway through this, because we're going to edit it, so, like, we're at the very end. <laughs> I think Spain just gave it away. <laughs> so, the very first machine that uh, Arcusen sent to the U.S., that's what you were working on. Yes. Now, that's a 14-bale bundler, so we're taking... 14 50 pound bales and putting three or four strings around it and it dumps out into the field then you can kind of handle it like a big bale right yes so the idea for this bundler came from a company making stackers of small squares so your your bale wagon you can say wagon when it's a when it's a pull type yes yeah right (laughs) it pulls Um, behind the tractor it's a wagon bale wagon's fine so making small square and big square pull type implements And then the idea coming along, I don't know the exact process in that of why don't we turn our small squares into big squares. So the idea behind the 14 bale bundle is it's the same size as a big square. And you can make that into a three by four or a three by three. So coming out of that, you handle them the same way you can handle your big squares. And it's a little different because it isn't one solid package, but the general idea behind it's the same. So pause, if we're talking about 14... 50-pound bales, each one of those bales is 14 inches tall and 18 inches wide, and then somewhere between 36 and 48 inches long. Yes. Somewhere in that range, and maybe as short as... Usually 30 30 to 48, so it's it's very forgiving on length. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A better bale makes a better bundle. Sometimes, depending on your market, it's hard to get consistent bales. Sure, sure, sure. So what we're talking about is stacking two of those bales on edge to make a big bale that's three feet tall, and then whatever the length of the bale is kind of determines the, yeah, the, the width. width. 
and then it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of eight feet long. Yes. Not everybody's... Just, just for the people who haven't Not seen everybody's it. familiar, and not everybody's as big a hay geek as maybe me. <laughs> There's lots of different ways to, to handle hay. What's the fastest? That's a loaded question, because it depends on what you're looking at and where you are going. Okay, so, so let's, let's pause here and say hay's valuable. Yes. Period, end of story. And it's the end market that determines the package that you're able to sell. So if you're talking about maybe a, a, a person with two horses, they're going to handle somewhere between two and they're going to feed somewhere between two and five tons of hay per year. So they're not handling that much volume. Whereas maybe a 15,000 cow dairy, that's a very different story as to what they're looking for. They're looking for material handling in a, in a very industrial way. All hay is valuable. And it's the end market that determines your package. So now that we can say everybody's going to make money on hay, unless you don't, that that happens, but (laughs) mostly everybody's going to make money on hay one way or the other, and there is no right answer. So now we can get past that and say, okay, what's the fastest way to put up hay? Period. And like, bottom line. Big squares is so hard to compete with because the ability to drop, uh, well, depending on your crop, 1,200 to 2,000 pound bales nonstop, and the compression on them is more than you're ever going to get in a round baler. That ability is just untouchable. But you turn around, you look at the covering aspect, which is where I, I said brought this up a little before, but coming from the Midwest, oh, it's going to rain in an hour? Let me just cover these bales in net wrap, and they can sit through the first rain, and I can pick them up in a week. And there's not a problem with that. That... A round bale is like a thatched roof yeah, yep. where the water just runs off. Yep. So you don't have to have them out of the field right now. S- sitting, even sitting, so where I'm at, we're between, I don't remember exactly, somewhere between 20 and 30 annual inches. And with that, we get four to, if we're not sitting in the in a low spot, we get between four to six inches of rot, just, just on the bottom center, two feet maybe. Mm-hmm. And then you peel an inch off the outside and it looks just like it was bailed. It's a good bail. Yep. That's what I grew up around, and that's what I've seen a lot of just because of where I'm at, and most of the people where I'm from, they're feeding their own cattle. It doesn't really matter. You you can throw in the bale, the part of the bale that's not quite as good. It doesn't matter. It'll mix right in with everything else. And there's none of that premium grade rating, rating your hay before you sell it. <laughs> right. It's not like uh, Timothy in the yeah. in the West where there's horse grades and dairy grades and subgrades within those grades yeah. and and the slightest little difference in color is distinguishable. You're just making cow hay. Yeah, when you know what your hay is going to, and you know the tolerances that your customer is willing to accept, that plays the biggest hand in how you put up your hay, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people who put up their hay and they they don't know who their end customer is going to be when they sell it. Which adds in a another layer of well, the better I put it up, the more money I make. Rather than the farm that I had been working for, we were fixed on just a couple of contracts, and we knew how much we needed, and we had quality ranges we wanted to get to. But as long as we could meet this criteria, we were going to get paid the same. So little little changes were not they weren't great, but they weren't the worst thing that could happen. Right. Understanding what your customer needs and their tolerances, determining the quality of hay that you have to get to, and how you accomplish that. That's a really cool thought process. So 
what's really interesting about what we were doing is we had pretty much four customers who wanted about the same thing. And we're looking at at least a thousand tons a year between those four customers. So decent sized customers. And we send everything by semi, big volumes, pretty easy to work with. But we also knew who is accepting of changes and who we say, okay, if we give you $10 a ton less, which coming from Kansas, you get the ton thing, but I get the ton where thing. I'm at, we're all by the ton. We have, we're very thankful that we have multiple scales within a radius and we have not for, not for a full semi weight, but for ma- for weighting our hay, we do it on in-house on our own farm. So we know what everything is. So you have an axle yep. scale. Yep. We yep. have an axle scale and then we have 70 foot scales, Two seventy foot scales within three mile, free to use. Oh, jeez, that's a good deal. It's, it's it's very good deal. So we always know right where we're trying to hit. But with those customers, we knew who would say, okay, if we have this hay that is not not quite the quality, but ten dollars a ton less, and and we they're get, okay. We got enough to give you the same crop from the same field in the same cutting for an entire year. That's why I really talk about those parameters of we know who is accepting of changes and who is not. And we were able to mix up what we have just to fit each market within our own means of production. So we, we look into cutting. So if, say we cut one, say we have one field, it's, it's quarter section, 160 acres, one field. And we know one of our customers will use about, on an average yield year, 100 to 120 acres of that field. So we want to put up that 120 acres within a one-week span, or if we have to, a two-week span, because they want the same crop year-round. So looking at factors like that, it actually, we actually pick what we want to cut when we want to cut it because we can't do everything at the exact same time just because of machinery and labor. Yeah, I mean, the logistics. Yeah. Yep. So looking at that, before, before we even cut, we think about, who this is going to in what order we want to cut into and how much we can cut. And those variables have been, they've helped us a lot. And it's the first couple of years we didn't do that. And we had a, a lot more of upset customers, but getting into that, figuring out how to, how to please your customers. And if you don't know your customers, I, I just feel sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're not, you're not looking at a, a mass buyer. I, I couldn't do that. We sell, I mean, you sell a couple, someone comes up, neighbor comes up, says, Hey, can I get 10 bales? Okay, whatever. Yeah, that's fine. But I can't imagine doing that year round. I'm just like, Okay, if you don't want more than 2,000 bales, why are we talking? And <laughs> you elitist. <laughs> Good grief. Not, not quite to that extreme, but for the most part, that's our smallest customer. Right. And in, on the handling side of that, if they're equipped to take that many bales, they're equipped to handle that many bales with mechanized labor. Ah, uh, yeah. And that's really where everything can kind of turn around into the bundler versus just loose small square bales versus round bales versus big squares. That totally changes your entire dynamic depending on what you're going to. If you have someone who has a lawn tractor. 30 yeah, horse, 20 yeah, horse 20, with a little horse. loader. Yeah. yeah, Maybe your 4 by 4 round bales, but... Five by five, five by six round bale, you're not going to be able to handle that. Right. Or even a big, uh, yeah. a three by four big square yeah. bale, you're out. You just don't have the lift capacity. All right. Most sincerely, this has been a blast. Just to sit back and shoot the breeze and talk hay with somebody that gets to see 
more country and more operations than just about anybody else on the planet. If anybody else in the hay industry is north of 100,000 miles in 12 months, 53 weeks, I want to hear about it and I want to talk to you too. Thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for your thoughts. Thanks. It was fun to be here and create some new terms. (laughs) 